Okay, uh, good afternoon, folks. Welcome to the uh, penultimate uh, NDISC National uh, International Security uh, Seminar for the uh, spring 2022 uh, social season. Uh, before I uh, introduce our uh, distinguished speaker, I uh, just wanted to uh, take care of a little bit of uh, administrative housekeeping. Um, the targeting sheet, I mean the uh, seating uh, chart, uh, if you put your name down so we can recognize you by name, and if you ask a really annoying question, we can uh, engage in uh, uh, retribution at our leisure. Um, the other thing is, uh, if you're new to NDISC uh, and like what you see today, and I guarantee you are going to like what you see today, uh, we have a sign-up sheet to uh, get on our uh, mailing list. And uh, we hardly ever uh, sell people's contact information, except to the highest bidder. But uh, other than that, it's safe with us. Um, it's my great pleasure to... Uh, uh, introduce uh, Professor Roseanne McManus uh, of uh, Penn State University. Um, Professor McManus is a distinguished graduate of the Department of Political Science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and uh, as a cheesehead, anybody that comes from Madison is uh, okay by me. Um, in the midst of graduate school, uh, Professor McManus took a hiatus and uh, spent, uh, was it uh, six years? Yeah, three, well, four years total, three years uh, between my MA and PhD. Um, as a, uh analyst at the Defense Intelligence Agency, and uh, I'll ask her a little bit more at dinner tonight what she did, and hopefully she won't shoot me after she tells me. Um, she is uh, the author uh, most recently of the book, Statements of Resolve, Achieving Coercive Credibility in International Conflict, which came out uh, with Cambridge University Press to much uh, critical acclaim. In fact, it won the ISA Foreign Policy Analysis section uh, best Book Award, um, and uh, also honorable mention uh, for the American Political Science Association uh, Conflict Processes uh, Section uh, Best Book Award. Um, and uh, uh, she has uh, a number of forthcoming articles. Um, uh, one piece of news that's uh, hot off the press that's not even reflected um, on her uh, CV is that uh, she's just accepted appointment as a uh, associate editor uh, for security studies and will actually be in the harness uh, July 1st, you uh, said? June 1st. June, oh, wow, June 1st. Mm -hmm. So uh, anyhow, please join me in giving a warm Notre Dame welcome to Roseanne McManus. Thank you everyone for coming, um, and thanks for having me here. It's a really beautiful campus, so um, it's great to be here and get to talk about my work. So today I'm going to be talking about a book manuscript in progress, which is tentatively titled Madman Theory, The Causes and Effects of Reputations for Madness in International Politics. So the term madman theory was coined by President Richard Nixon um, according to the memoirs of his aide, 
Bob Haldeman. So according to Haldeman, and this was not recorded, it's just Haldeman's memory in his notes, but according to Haldeman, Nixon said, I call it the madman theory, Bob. I want the North Vietnamese to believe that I've reached the point that I might do anything to stop the war. We'll just slip the word to them that Nixon is obsessed about communism, we can't restrain him when he's angry, and he has his hand on the nuclear button, and Ho Chi Minh himself will be in Paris in two days begging for peace. So the idea is, if the North Vietnamese believe that Nixon is a little bit crazy, then that will give him more bargaining leverage because they'll believe he would actually use nuclear weapons. So the idea is that being a madman uh, helps you bargain better in international conflict. And Nixon was not the first to propose this idea. Um, the longest exposition of it was actually in a 1959 speech uh, by Daniel Ellsberg, who was an analyst at RAND and then later became famous for leaking the Pentagon Papers. Uh, Thomas Schelling, another famous strategist, talks about it a little bit in his work. And even Machiavelli has some uh, similar ideas uh, in his own work. But Nixon is the one who gave it the name. Uh, more recently, uh, President Trump generated uh, additional interest in the madman theory. Um, a lot of his critics thought that he might be a little crazy, and even Trump himself acknowledged having a madness reputation. Uh, this is from this quote is from uh, the Gridiron Club dinner, which is one of those dinners where politicians and journalists get together and make uh, jokes. Uh, and so this is a joke, but I think it's a little bit of a revealing joke. So uh, Trump said, "I won't rule out direct." This was before he first met with Kim. Uh, I won't rule out direct talks with Kim Jong Un. As far as the risk of dealing with a madman is concerned, that's his problem, not mine. Implying that he himself is the madman. And even more recently, uh, people have been talking about whether uh, President Putin is a madman. And um, I just put up an image of a Washington Post uh, monkey cage blog that I wrote about that. Um, but some people say Putin has sort of genuinely gone crazy due to COVID isolation. Uh, that famous picture shows how isolated he is physically from other people. But other people say, well, he's just pretending to be crazy because he knows that it might have these certain advantages. Uh, so these are some current events that have increased interest in this theory. But um, I realized that really no one in political science has been thinking about this uh, very much since the 1960s. So it seems like uh, there could be room to make a contribution here. Um, and I know that um, Nick uh, Campbell-Saramatis, who's a postdoc here, is also doing some work along these lines, which is also really exciting. Um, and unfortunately, he couldn't be here tonight. So my book project basically does three things. Uh, it attempts to define madness, not in a psychological way, but in a way that's relevant for analyzing international conflict. Uh, then I talk about the effects of madness on coercion, which basically means getting what you want. And then I talk about the sources of madness reputations or how leaders develop them. And I'm going to spend the most time on that uh, this afternoon because that's the part that's really new to the book manuscript and hasn't been published elsewhere. Uh, this is the stuff that has been published elsewhere. Uh, so I published one article in Security Studies, which is the journal that I'll be associate editor of. And I published another article in the British Journal of Political Science. And I'm going to talk about my findings in those articles and my theory from those articles a little bit to set the context, and then I'll move into the other material that has not been published yet. So again, my approach to defining madness um, 
is to identify broad types of madness that might be useful to think about when we think about the impact on uh, bargaining between countries. And I base these definitions on how the leader is expected to behave and not the underlying psychology. So um, if someone is expected to behave unpredictably, I don't care about whether it's because they have bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or whatever. I just care that they're expected to behave unpredictably. And finally, I focus on perceived madness. So I'm not a psychologist, so I can't say for sure, for example, uh, whether President Putin is a madman, even though people in the media seem to think that I'm the person who can tell them that. Um, but no, I can't really, um, I can't really make that judgment. Um, and in fact, even psychologists um, usually don't make judgments about people's psychology without personally interviewing the person. So I'm not trying to say certain leaders are mad or not, but I'm looking at how their adversaries perceive them. Like all good theories, mine has a two-by-two two typology. So uh, the first dimension is whether the leader has extreme preferences or deviates from consequence-based decision-making. Uh, deviating from consequence-based decision-making is a, a purer type of madness. So political scientists usually think of rationality as meaning that you do make decisions based on the consequences, and so deviating from that would be irrationality. Extreme preferences are not uh, incompatible with rationality as political scientists typically understand it, um, because you could have extreme preferences but still make rational decisions to get to your goals. Um, but in the more um, colloquial understanding of madness, um, I would argue that can also encompass uh, extreme preferences. So if like, if you're, a, if someone like Mao Zedong who claimed um, in the early 60s or late 50s that you know, if there was a nuclear war, a few people, few billion people would die, but it wouldn't be such a big deal, the world population will recover and everyone will be communist. Uh, so if, if that was really his preference, then even if he was acting in a um, consequence-oriented fashion, most people would say, well, that's a little bit nutty if you think that a few billion people dying is not a big deal. Um, and then the other dimension is whether it's uh, situational or dispositional. So situational means just some of the time. Dispositional means it's part of your disposition, so all of the time. So to make this more concrete, um, if you have situational extreme preferences, you have your preferences are extreme, but only over one issue or one set of issues. So um, a little later, I'll give the example of Hitler. And um, in his early years in power, uh, I would argue that the British viewed him as being extreme only on the issue of German nationalism, but not other issues. Of course, they were incorrect on that, but that's how they viewed him. And then dispositional would mean um, that you're extreme on everything, which is probably how Hitler actually was, because he, you know, he just wanted more and more and more constantly. And then uh, for the deviation from consequence-based decision-making, if it's situational, it means that it just happens when there's some sort of trigger. So usually the trigger would be some sort of provocation, like you, you insult someone, and then they fly off the handle and do something without thinking about the consequences.
whereas uh, the dispositional deviation from consequence-based decision-making is um, a pure type of madness where the leader's behavior is really just kind of random and unpredictable, and they can um, make decisions randomly even uh, without provocation. And um, if you have any clarifying questions, feel free to raise your hand. So moving into how this affects coercion, I argue that there's a trade-off. So the benefit of having perceived madness is that you're able to make credible threats. So that's what Nixon was basically arguing. If the North Vietnamese think that I'm crazy, then they'll believe that I might use nuclear weapons. Um, so, so that's like the classic madman theory, uh, is this top bullet. But what I argue is that there's also a drawback of perceived madness, which is that you're not able to make as credible assurances. Um, and as I've argued in some of my other work uh, with Andy Kidd, um, every threat has like an implicit assurance paired with it. And even Thomas Schelling has argued this as well. So, so Schelling said, if you threaten um, one step more and I shoot, there's an implicit assurance, if you stop walking, then I won't shoot you. Otherwise, the threat wouldn't work. So threats and assurances go hand in hand, and perceived madness can undermine uh, explicit or implicit insurance, assurances. And so when we think about, um, I see I'm missing a top label here. OK, there it comes. Um, when we think about how these work together, um, I argue that the situational types of perceived madness are more likely to be helpful for coercion because you have the threat credibility, uh, at least over certain issue areas, but you don't have as much of a problem with making credible assurances. Because if, if it's not dispositional, um, then people don't worry as much about future problems. So for example, um, if you're just extreme over one issue, then um, your opponent might reason, okay, we can just give in to this person on this one issue, and then we won't have any other problems. On the other hand, if you're believed to be extreme on everything, then people would reason, well, we have to stop you now, because if we don't stop you now, then um, you're just going to keep challenging us. Sort of like what people are saying about Putin right now. I mean, may maybe if we thought he, he just wants the Donbass and then he'll be happy forever, maybe we would be more likely to give it to him. But a lot of people suspect maybe he actually wants to reconstitute the Soviet Union. And in that case, we should stand up to him earlier. Uh, similarly, for if your deviation from consequence-based decision-making is just situational, then people might reason, well, we just have to not do anything to provoke this person, and we'll be OK. But if it's dispositional, then um, you, you really can't ever expect peace with the person, because they could attack you anytime. So that's why I expect these two types to be harmful. And I expect this one to be slightly less helpful, just because it's less predictable. The person might fly off the handle, but then again, they might not. So that's basically um, the part of the theory that I've already published about. And that'll be in the book, um, but it's not really new. Uh, so the new question for the book is, how do madness reputations develop? And the theory that I'm working on talks about the different sources of information and also about observer biases. And um, I have several empirical chapters, but I'm just going to talk about uh, three of them this afternoon.
So I look at three main sources of information, and I'll explain what all of these are when I get to their individual sides, but it's uh, signals, indices, and past conflict behavior. And I drew these from existing literature on how reputations for resolve form, uh, because most of the reputation information literature in political science is about reputations for resolve. Also, um, I use the words reputation and perception more or less interchangeably. A perception is a belief. A reputation is a belief about character traits. So um, I would argue that a reputation is a type of perception. Um, and if you want to challenge me on that, that's fine. It's kind of unusual, but um, that's, that's how I've sort of gravitated. Uh, so signals. Uh, signals are gestures that are strategically intended to alter beliefs about characteristics or, uh, or intentions of the actor who sent the signal. So these are some classic signals of resolve, like making a speech or uh, doing a show of force, like the worship. Um, and I argue that these are probably not good. So these are very considered to be very useful for establishing the perception of resolve. But I argue they're probably not going to be very relevant to madness reputations because, uh, for one, the idea of strategically signaling is not even compatible with the idea of being um, uh, uh, of deviating from consequence-based decision making. So at least for that half of the two by two, this is really not useful at all. And then um, even for the extreme preferences type, uh, it's probably going to be hard to find. Uh, signals that are extreme enough. So, so if making a speech or sending a warship signals resolve, it might not be enough to signal really extreme levels of resolve. And by the way, I think I forgot to mention. So, in terms of thinking about extreme preferences, it, it could be, it could be either in terms of costs or risks or um, your value on the outcome. So, so someone like Mao Zedong would be an example of someone with. Uh, who views war as like very, very uncostly. So that would be extreme. Uh, but someone who puts like a very high valuation on winning or who is really risk tolerant, that could also be extreme. Uh, but it might be hard to convey this type of extremism with just uh, standard signals of resolve. Then I think about past conflict behavior. And the logic here is basically that past behavior reveals character traits. But it's important to think about the situational context because uh, behavior in one situation doesn't necessarily translate to the other. So like if my friend is late to meet me for lunch once, then I might expect her to be late to meet me for lunch in the future. But I wouldn't necessarily expect her to be late for a job interview because that's much more important. So context matters. And so if we're interested in um, madness, as it would manifest itself um, in international conflict, then we really want to look at past international conflict behavior and whether the leader has behaved in a way that indicates madness um, in any of these, uh, in any past conflict. Oh, and by the way, for this, uh, for this portion, even though I previously made a big deal about the four different types, for this portion, I'm, I'm basically just considering them all at once. Um, in the book chapter, I have a, a little section that talks about the different nuances of the four types, but I think, in, in general, the same basic pathways can apply to all four. Uh, and so, getting back to this slide, um, I think that probably past conflict behavior 
is the best way for um, observers to know whether a leader is truly a madman, or, or probably like the most likely way that they'll make that judgment. But a problem, oh, and so, um, for example, um, Khrushchev here, initially he had, as I'll talk about, um, somewhat of a madness reputation, but then when he um, repeatedly did not follow through on his threats, he began to lose that reputation. And um, similarly, it's Putin's conflict behavior in Ukraine that's contributed to the fact that he's starting to get a madness reputation. But um, not all leaders have been involved in past conflicts. You know, some, some leaders are too new. And so that's going to be sort of a limiting factor in terms of what we can um, learn from past conflict behavior. And so that leads us to the third source of information, uh, which is indices. So um, this is a term that was coined by Robert Jervis, uh, who's a rather famous political scientist. Um, he's been published, he started publishing in the 1970s, uh, continued publishing uh, up until uh, just before his death, which was quite recent. Um, and so he's the one who first came up with this idea of distinguishing between uh, signals and indices. Um, the word index is, a little bit awkward, I think, because it is like this is like a genuine dictionary meaning of index if you look it up, but it's not a very commonly used meaning. So sometimes I think people get a little confused, but um, I'm sticking with this at least so far because that's what Jervis used. So Jervis defined um, indices as uh, statements or behaviors that were believed to be beyond the ability of the actor to control for for the purpose of projecting a misleading image. Um, so one example of this could be behavior when you, you're not in control of yourself. So either for emotional reasons or if you're under the influence of alcohol or some other sort of substance. Another example could be if you're not aware of being observed. So if, um, if the NSA has tapped some leader's phone line and they don't know it's tapped, then um, whatever they're saying on the phone is not intended to influence anyone, and so you can take it as uh, genuine. And the last one, I have it in here, but I've, I'm not sure I totally agree with Jervis that it fits. Uh, so Jervis would say that behavior that's too costly to be a signal would be an index. And so I, I'm not sure, actually, that this is not a signal. Um, so I could end up moving this to the signal category. But I think what he has in mind is, um, I'll, I'll have a couple of examples. So, so Hitler, for example, um, he killed millions of Jews. Um, and that, that was part of what contributed to his madness reputation. But most people would not be willing to do that just for signaling purposes. And so in that sense, it would be like too costly to be a signal. Or like Kim Jong-un, he killed his uncle and his brother. Um, most people would not be willing to do that for signaling purposes, and so um, when we see it, we might infer that it's not actually a signal, but it's just something that he did um, because of his genuine personality. So I'm not totally comfortable with where to put this one, but I do think it's an important one, and in my case studies, I do see this type of thing uh, being influential. So in terms of indices, um, I think they can be informative. Um, they tend to be very widely available. So in, in contrast to past conflict behavior, uh, which there's not really much of, 
there's usually a ton of indices because there's lots of people who meet with a leader and get impressions of them, and the leader's making all sorts of domestic choices that might be indices. So there's lots of disinformation. Um, but the trouble is that um, to be an index, it has to be viewed as unmanipulated. But there's always going to be sort of suspicion that it is being manipulated. So like Khrushchev, for example, he always appeared to get very angry. And at first, people thought this was genuine. He was actually very angry and not in control of himself. And therefore, it was an index. But over time, people began to suspect, oh, he's just acting. And so even though it seems like it's unmanipulated behavior, he is actually trying to manipulate us. So that's going to be a limitation on indices. And so um, my two main hypotheses are that indices will be the most common source of perception about a leader's madness because they're so widely available. But um, past conflict behavior is uh, actually a more valuable source of information. And so when that is available, observers will put more weight on that um, than for indices. And as I said, this applies to all four types of madness reputation. Now, more briefly on observer biases. Uh, so there might be various bias. So there might be various biases that um, observers use to use to sort of filter the information they're getting. Um, so one might be gender and culture stereotypes. Uh, Nick, uh, who's a postdoc here, has actually investigated that a little bit, and he actually doesn't find much evidence of it. Uh, so that's kind of interesting. Although I don't think he looked at gender. He looked at uh, he looked at race, though. He didn't find that actually mattered very much. Um, some people also argue that people in different areas of the government might process information differently, so that could be relevant. But I don't really focus on either of those. Um, I decided I would focus on motivated reasoning, which is a tendency to reach conclusions based on their desirability rather than based on evidence. I'm not saying this is the only bias, but it's one that seemed to be um, pretty important in my case studies. So how might motivated reasoning matter? Well, there could be various reasons to be motivated to believe things, but this is one thing that I think um, we can maybe say is true in at least most cases, uh, and that's the role of military power. So for a weak leader, fighting them is going to be more desirable, and um, viewing the leader as dispositionally mad uh, can be an argument for uh, attacking early. Uh, because for a dispositionally mad leader, you can't really hope to have peace with them in the long term, and so you might want to just attack them as soon as you can. In contrast, when the leader is strong, fighting them is going to be less desirable, and therefore motivated reasoning would suggest a greater incentive to view them as either sane or situationally mad, which are the types that you can deal with a little bit more. So um, I would expect that militarily Weaker leaders are more likely to be viewed as dispositionally mad, and militarily stronger leaders are more likely to be viewed as sane or situationally mad. But I think this is something that will matter more on the margins. Um, I, I don't think this is the most important factor. So I'll just quickly walk through um, three of my case studies. So Hitler, um, I looked at him between 1933 and 1938. Uh, 38 is important because after that, I would say his madness reputation uh, shifted. Uh, so, so 38 is when the Sudetenland crisis happened. I would say that's like the last time that he had a reputation for only situational extreme preferences. After he took over the rest of Czechoslovakia, um, it switched to more dispositional. Um, 
So in terms of looking at how Hitler initially developed a reputation for situational extreme preferences, um, I do see a substantial influence of indices. So in private, Hitler got very emotional, um, but only over certain issues like Jews and race and German nationalism, but not over everything. Similarly, he was um, emotional in public, and then um, there were his policies toward the Jews, um, which hadn't reached their full extreme by 1938, but even by that year, there was a lot of discrimination and violence against Jews. And again, by Jervis's definition, I would say uh, this is an index because it's something that probably someone would not do just for signaling purposes. Um, interestingly, though, Hitler was so successful at conveying situational extreme preferences that the British and French never even attempted to fight him. And so he actually didn't have any past conflict behavior uh, to demonstrate his extreme preferences. Um, so, so if you're really good at indices, I guess the moral of the story is if you're really good at indices, then maybe you can avoid ever having to fight. And I think motivated reasoning also played a big role here. Um, even though Hitler never fought, he did really, well, didn't, he had not fought up to 38, because um, everyone gave in to him. Um, but he was building up the German military. People knew that the German military was very strong. And between that and the memory of World War I, the British and French really did not want to fight him. And so even though um, a, a close look at what he was saying um, could already indicate he had wider um, ambitions than unifying the Germans. Uh, they, they didn't really want to believe this. And so, especially the British Prime Minister, Chamberlain, uh, really clung to the idea that Hitler was really just a racist, but otherwise not, but not like a megalomaniac uh, who wanted to take over the whole world. Um, and and he, he clung to that belief um, considerably longer than a lot of other people in the British government. So I do see some role of motivated reasoning as well. Um, Khrushchev, so Khrushchev is someone who I would say developed a reputation for situational deviation from consequence-based decision-making. However, I would say that reputation faded by 1960, which is why um, I put 1960 as the end date there, even though he stayed in office a couple of years beyond that. So again, I, there's a lot of evidence of indices playing a role. Um, he was a heavy drinker, as many Westerners observed. He would fly into sudden fits of rage um, in lots of his meetings with Western officials. Um, he went to visit the US in um, either 58 or 59, and he repeatedly threw uh, temper tantrums, like when he couldn't go to Disneyland for security reasons. Um, and then uh, there was this alleged shoe pounding incident, although interestingly in my research about this I learned that there's no picture of him pounding the shoe. Sometimes you see pictures but they're photoshopped, so this is the real picture, no shoe. Um, <laughs> and uh, eyewitness accounts differ on whether he pounded his shoe. So some people who are there say yes, other people say no. So that may or may not have happened. But it, it contributed to his reputation, arguably. Although that was sort of toward the end of this time period, so I wouldn't say it was a big contributor. Uh, at least among, in the view of US officials. In the view of the US public, maybe a little bit bigger. Um, 
However, his past behavior undermined what these indices were telling um, U.S. officials. So his indices, you know, their personal interactions with him suggested, oh, he's someone who flies off the handle and acts spontaneously. But actually, when, uh, when the stakes were high in international conflict, um, Khrushchev developed a habit of backing down. Um, so in 1958, which was his first ultimatum over Berlin, uh, I would say that was when people took him, took his threats most seriously. Um, but then by 1960, but he, he didn't follow through. He basically backed down from his ultimatum. Um, and by 1960, um, the consensus opinion among US officials was that he was faking it. And so while tensions were high again in the second Berlin crisis and in the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, there wasn't really much discussion that Khrushchev would act irrationally. So certainly they were afraid of nuclear war in the Cuban Missile Crisis, but um, you don't really see them talking about, oh, Khrushchev, he, he could fly off the handle and do anything. I don't think motivated reasoning plays much of a role here. I mean, this does fit with my hypothesis because the Soviet Union was viewed, was powerful and Khrushchev was viewed as only uh, situationally deviating from consequence-based decision-making. But I think there was not really much evidence that he was like totally off his rocker anyway. So I think probably that's the um, conclusion that logic would dictate anyway. Uh, someone like Gaddafi, by the way, uh, Gaddafi is my case study of um, dispositional deviation from consequence-based decision-making, um, who, who was really believed, uh, at least by some US officials, to have uh, and then serious finally, psychological I want to talk about uh, Kim Jong-un. So this is a much more recent case. Um, I look at him from when he first came to power uh, in 2009 up through 2020. And in the case of Kim, um, I don't have nearly as much um, like archival sorts of information. So, so for the other leaders, I can, a lot of papers have been declassified. And so I can see what British and US officials were actually saying privately, which is a better indication of what they really think than what they were saying publicly. Uh, for Kim, I don't have that um, because this is so much more recent. But one useful thing for Kim is that um, we're now in the era of LexisNexis. And so I was able to um, download or, or record a bunch of LexisNexis information, and that allows me to look at some of these trends um, more quantitatively. So this is just a graph of um, LexisNexis reports that describe Kim as a madman. And here I'm actually including skeptical reports. So even if they say, if someone says like, a lot of people think that Kim is a madman, but I don't. Um, I would still include that because it has the first part a lot of people think, but I'll break those out a little bit later. Um, so basically, I, I searched for these adjectives in proximity to Kim's name, and then my research assistant uh, verified uh, that these were not false positives. And there were a lot of false positives that she had to weed out. Um, the two different lines are government figures and journalists, but they pretty much go together. Uh, more or less. And then this is just a smoother, which shows it's going up. How come you didn't include Dennis Rodman as a search term? <laughs> well, I, that'll, that'll actually come in later. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was able to figure out what all these spikes were associated with. 
And um, most of these spikes are actually associated with signals and not indices. So in a way that seems to, so I would consider all of these military things to be signals. Um, I only list uh, killing his uncle and killing his brother as indices, uh, according to Jervis's definition. And so this would seem to maybe contradict my theory, um, but talking about it more when there's a signal doesn't necessarily mean that the signal is the reason they think that. So I also had my research assistant code the reasons why people are calling Kim a madman. Um, and in most cases, there's actually no reason. So this is just the ones that give reasons. And so I broke them down um, by different categories. So surprisingly, a large number of people point to his appearance. Um, other people point to eccentricities, although I put Dennis Rodman in there as an eccentricity. Um, some people point to his immaturity, uh, domestic politics, mostly in terms of uh, repression, um, like, like you'd have to be a madman to have all these prison camps, um, madness in his family, um, and then killing his family. And there's also some reports in the press that he killed his girlfriend, but that's probably not true. Um, and most experts don't think that's true, but uh, nonetheless, some people reported it as true. Could be true. Um, and then the yellow is signals, so I coded um, nuclear missile tests as the darker yellow and um, verbal threats and other signals as a lighter yellow. And so um, when we look at it this way, we see um, signals are less commonly uh, given as a reason for saying that Kim is a madman uh, compared to indices. And in terms of past behavior, um, Kim, uh, you know, despite all these indices, despite all of the threats and even these really kind of funny, threatening videos that they release, um, he's avoided ever pushing um, the U.S. too far. Uh, so he's, he hasn't um, initiated anything that would bring him into direct conflict with the U.S. And so I would argue that this kind of has undermined his madness reputation. So it's kind of like uh, Khrushchev where like this wacky personal behavior is pointing in the direction of madness, but then when you actually look at what he does um, when the stakes are high, it seems a little bit more like he's um, pretty sane. And so actually um, a quarter of the madness references that we found are uh, skeptical and say Kim is not a madman. Um, and these are, these are two examples uh, from the U.S. government. Sir Rex Tillerson, the former Secretary of State, said when certain events have happened, he's taken a rational, he's made rational choices. And a CIA official said there's a clarity of purpose in what Kim Jong-un has done. In terms of motivated reasoning, uh, this part I haven't really finished researching yet, but um, it is a little bit hard to categorize Kim as weak or strong. Um, he's not, compared to the US, he's not super strong conventionally, but he does have nuclear weapons, which makes him stronger. Um, I will say that the Trump administration officials who implied that he was dispositionally mad also seem to believe that a military strike could be successful, which might suggest um, some motivated reasoning on their part. So, um, in conclusion, uh, so far my evidence uh, seems to verify uh, the importance of these three things, but I'm still doing research on this part of the book, and so 
I look forward to your feedback on this and um, the other parts and to your questions. Great. Uh, thank you very much. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.